Hey, it's Josiah. Before we get started with this episode, I have something very special to share with you. You know, we've delved deep into what it means to be an Enneagram 5 together for the past few years, especially with our friend of the show, Sam Greenberg, or as many of you know her, the Enneagram expert. And now we want to go even deeper with you. We've worked together with Sam to craft an online workshop exclusively for type 5s to help you unlock the secrets of connection with every Enneagram type. This is not just another generic workshop. It's a deep dive into understanding and nurturing relationships tailored specifically for your unique perspective. Imagine getting practical, actionable insights on connecting with each of the nine Enneagram types all through the lens of a type five. Sam's going to guide you on how to build meaningful relationships, sharing strategies and insights specifically designed for fives. I've seen firsthand how Sam's insights can transform understanding and communication. And I'm so excited to partner with her to bring this exclusive workshop to you. Whether you're looking to deepen current relationships or navigate new ones, this workshop is a game changer for fives seeking genuine connection. Spots are limited, and trust me, you don't want to miss this. So head over to Enneagram5.com connection to secure your place and begin your journey towards richer, more authentic connections. Once again, go to Enneagram5.com connection or visit the link in the description to get your ticket to the workshop today. Hey, it's Cody. Before we get started, I wanted you to know that this episode contains content dealing with thoughts and feelings of suicide and may be disturbing to a younger audience or those who may be suffering similar feelings. You can find the times of such moments in the show notes if you'd like to skip those parts. If you are dealing with thoughts or feelings of suicide, we implore you to seek help by reaching out to the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. super grouchy when I haven't had enough alone time. Yeah. And um, it's gotten to the point. So I definitely got grouchy before. Now I don't get so much grouchy as it just, I can tell when I'm starting to hit my limit. So my wife picks up on this all the time and she notices when I'm starting to hit my limit. And what's great is now we're at the point in a relationship where she recognizes that and we have worked out what each other's needs are Mm. and so she says she makes room for that so she says hey do you need to go upstairs for five minutes or 15 minutes or just do some meditation or something I'm like yes please (laughs) wait so she gives you the same time frames you guys give the kids for doing activities I mean, I pretty much always go over time as well, and she's really great about not bugging me. I think she does it intentionally. She doesn't want to feel like she's bugging me, but I actually probably could use a reminder. But also, now I don't want her to listen to this episode because now she'll start giving me reminders. (laughs) (laughs) You know she's going to listen to the episode, that is. I think that that's been something that has been definitely a hard thing to learn at first with Madison in our relationship now, early on, it was, you're trying to figure out 
what it is that you're trying to still figure each other out. So trying to learn my quirks and there are many, it's really hard to, to get them down and and not take them personally, I guess. Yeah. And so that's something that took a long time for her to not take my really stupid behaviors <laughs> personally. And one of those things being that it's something that I really thought, or I really didn't know how to handle that. I really didn't know how to communicate that to her. I didn't know how to say like, hey, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> I'm just a crazy person. And, and I feel crazy when I don't get time by myself. And we went through, we had a house that we rented before in 2019. And we, I had a whole office. I had a space that was mine and I could go in there and I could do the things that I wanted to do, creative outlets, things like that. And it helped so much. And then we moved downtown into a 500 square foot apartment where I had no space of my own. And I learned very quickly, luckily I was in a much healthier place than I could have been. I think that if it was any other time before that, (laughs) that period of time, I would have been, I would have been very hard to to live with. Uh, I think I just wouldn't have handled it well at all. Uh, I, I remember having this conversation with you when you were moving in there. I'm like, okay, so you're, you're not going to have any of your own space. And, and you're like, yeah, you know, I think it'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, and it, and it was fine. And it was fine, but it just, it gave me flashbacks of when Amy and I were living in a 300 square foot apartment for like a year and a half in Bellingham. Right. Yeah. And uh, I thought I was going to go insane. And <laughs> <laughs> and the the fortunate part was like I I was able to get out and like have my own space at work and stuff. But when you don't have that, especially and people are working from home, it's way more challenging. And we yeah we moved in there thinking she was going to go to work every day, right. and then the world ended and she had to work <laughs> from home. And so the desk that we were going to share was now her desk. Yep. And it took me a good six months, I think, before of going to work and coming home and going to work and coming home and not having anywhere to do anything. And I wasn't writing songs. I wasn't doing anything creative. You know, it was just completely stifled at that point. And it took me a while to realize I need to figure out a way. And I remember I I was sitting on the couch looking at the TV and looking down under the TV and going, you know, if I take that shelf under the TV away, I could put a desk there. (laughs) And that's what I did. I ordered a new desk on uh, Amazon and it got there and I took over that entire space and she hated it from that point on because (laughs) all of my recording things and everything was on this desk in the middle of the apartment where everybody could see it. I constantly tried to master cord management. It never happened. And yeah, so that was like a whole thing with us for a long time where she would get on to me about my desk and my desk was just this ugly eyesore. (laughs) And then we moved to a new apartment. Well, before that, you and I started recording this podcast and then every week or so you'd have to break everything down and bring it over here. (laughs) Right. And so every time I would get the cords all... (laughs) organized and put away (laughs) i would have to dig it all apart like pull it all apart and get it and so that became a whole thing too but yeah we moved this year um in february we moved to an apartment that was 850 square feet so a little bigger for sure and also gave me a rentable space downstairs and she said, you're doing that. <laughs> you're moving all of your stuff out of the apartment. It's no longer here where I can see it. And so 
I moved all it all, all of it down there, and it's it was one of those spaces where like if if you can imagine this, it's 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 basically a cage. The back is a cage door, and then there's this big window that looks out into an open conference room, I guess, mm. and which is not conducive to a five. Because I feel like I'm on display and everybody can see me. And so the first thing that I started thinking about was how can I make this a box yep. that isolates me from everything and everyone? And so I put, but I put foam up everywhere, sound, soundproofing foam. And, but I did a foam board, cut foam board into the, and covered the window all the way to the black ceiling. Black foam board. Black yes. foam board. Mm-hmm. And then I put black foam board on the cage door thing behind me. And so, and foam on the walls. And so everything is completely literally isolated sound <laughs> everything sounds great in there for recording that's where i record all of the music for this podcast and i can just go in there and i'm in my own space and it's i i this may be the happiest and most emotionally healthy i've ever been <laughs> she probably hates it because i go down there especially since this podcast has started i go down there many evenings of the week as soon as i get home from work at five or six i go down there and stay there until midnight <laughs> and so you know editing podcasts and making music and whatever and so but i love it yeah and if you look at the it's a giant wall mm-hmm. of like eight offices yeah and you can see into every single one and then right. the bottom right corner it's completely blacked out <laughs> <laughs> There is no denying which one is the five office in the introvert. And it's funny because the, people come in doing tours through there all the time. You know, the, the office people come in and show in and, and like, here's our offices. You can rent these out. And every time I can hear them, I'm either in there in the main room just watching it happen or I'm in my office and I can hear them talking and they always go, what's in there? And they go, oh, that's you can customize it the way that you want. And they're like, what did he do in there, though? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> and they're always like, uh, they don't know how to answer. So they're like, well, you know, he did. and I always stuck, come out and like, I kind of explain it. I'm like, I do music things and podcast things. It, it makes sense when you think about it. But otherwise, outside from the outside looking in, it looks kind of scary. If people are like, they're doing something nefarious in there. It's got to be bad. You need like a black robe that you can put on. <laughs> <laughs> a, like a big, like a pointy hat, like a, like a wizard. <laughs> Just come out trying to explain myself. That's a great lead in to what we're talking about, which is there is an innate drive. And it's something that all introverts share, I think. But I think that there's a special version of it that fives have (laughs) that we want to, we crave solitude. We crave that space where we can just be alone with our thoughts, with ourselves. And so... We're talking about that and specifically where we draw that line between solitude and isolation because there's a point and I think we've all we've we've all experienced this where we cross over that line into isolation and then it becomes uh, a completely different experience and usually not one that serves us well and I know personally for me when I am isolated for too long I start getting destructive and I uh, start doing things and saying things that are not in my best interest or the interest of those around me. And a lot of it's self-perpetuating. So I'm doing things that are driving people away that are then furthering my isolation. Um, for me to create a place of solitude, I have to have absolute quiet. I'm very sensitive to noises. Um, 
and they can be stressful for me. So I like small book nooks and corners to nestle into um, with low lighting, and I either read a book or I write. I have to have a quiet place to distress since I work in a pretty stressful, highly emotional environment. I usually realize I've had too much solitude when I start thinking about my friends and going out to see them, or if I feel like I need to go out for fun somewhere. I can get bored with myself sometimes. We want, really want to dig into what that is, where it comes from, where that line might be, because I don't think we really know. <laughs> We're just going to yeah. try to figure it out in maybe real time here. By, maybe by the end of the conversation, yeah. we'll be as enlightened as you are. And then we will talk about maybe what, how we can do something about it. Yeah. If we want to. Or maybe even reflect on the ways that we have done something about it in the past yeah. and not realize it. I think that that's something that I was thinking about as we were contemplating mm. how we were going to talk about this today. And I made up some notes here and I thought about how I've been able to get out of it in the past. And so we can kind of talk about that as well. By the way, my notes are like five lines and Cody's are like a whole a page. A whole page. Yeah. <laughs> and I won't say most of it. <laughs> but it helped me now. It helped me to be able to get to where I can... I don't feel anxious about this conversation. There we we talked about that before. I, I always feel anxious before every episode because I feel like I'm not going to have anything to say. And you always do. Somehow, you bring it out of me. Oh. Such a great partnership. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with some times where we have been isolated. It was an interesting journey for me because, well, first of all, I was born in West Virginia in the hills. <laughs> Literally, the sticks. The town I was born in had like a hundred people in it, and so that that's isolating the way that it is. And so my parents were from a small town; they grew up that way. And I think that there's some people that just really like having that space and mm -hmm. that distance and living in that. And I think that's awesome for those people. And I am not one of those people. And I think we also need to preface this conversation with Cody and I are both. Social subtypes, primarily, and uh, as far as I, I know, at least I think so. I know, I know he, that I am. So, needless to say, I grew up pretty isolated from the beginning, and we moved a lot. So, when I was seven, we moved from West Virginia to West Georgia. To so, I've moved. Like the actual process of moving is, I think we're at twenty-eight times now. Wow! So I've moved. That's a lot. I didn't know you moved 28 times? 28 times. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, and it's not always to like new towns or, or anything, but it's just the process of moving. Why? It's been a lot. Life. I don't know if I've ever asked you this. Like, why did they move so many times? Well, you know, for my dad, it was when we were in West Virginia, he had his own business and it just, there weren't a lot of opportunities where we were. And mm -hmm. when that kind of went south... He started looking for other opportunities, and we had some family in West Georgia, so we moved down there with them. And then it just kind of it started with we're moving wherever you know the best opportunity is right now. And so I moved four or five times before high school, I think, and then took a little break there for about five or six years, and then mm. moved down to Chattanooga. So we we moved to Atlanta, and then we moved up to Nashville, and then I moved down to Chattanooga for school. Mm. And then moved several times. I've lived in like every every part of Chattanooga pretty much. Yeah. And then moved out to Bellingham, Washington. 
and we moved to pretty much every part of Bellingham, Washington while we were there and then moved back okay. to Nashville okay. and then moved back to Chattanooga. So it's like, it's just been a big round trip with a bunch of different moves. And I think I misunderstood that you moved 28 times with your family when you were a kid. So that was part of it. Well, mo- so Amy- 28 times total with 20, your family oh as a not kid. with my not with my okay. family as a kid yeah sorry no, for that yeah. confusion yeah no you've moved every year since i've known you so that makes a lot of sense 28 yeah. times adds up a lot when you do yeah. it every single year yeah and sometimes multiple times a year that's right on many occasions so yes i have moved 28 times in my lifetime it's impressive Pro- probably about half of those were with my family maybe probably less at that at this point but you know each time it was, and, and we were homeschooled. That was the other part of it too. And until we moved to Marietta, which is Metro Atlanta, it was always these small towns, fairly isolated. We were homeschooled, so there wasn't a lot of um, people around. And that's just how I was. We were in this sort of bubble. And I didn't get along with my siblings. <laughs> I didn't get along with my parents. I didn't really have opportunities to make friends outside of that circle. And when I did, it did not go very well because I was super socially awkward. And so I didn't, I was pretty much just alone with myself and I mm. was angry all the time. I, I didn't want, I, I mean, I can think back to as early as eight years old and feeling this war within myself because on one hand, I, I wanted to keep people out. And, and not let anyone in because I was just so angry. And, and then on the, other, on the other hand, I really wanted to belong. And I, I wanted, so I was seeking connection and seeking relationships and, want, and, and desiring that outside of my family circle. So that's how my life began. And then in seventh grade, and I think I've told part of this before in an earlier conversation, But in seventh grade, I finally convinced my family to, or my parents to let me go to public school. Mm. And I had this romanticized idea of what it was going to be like to finally go to school and have friends and experience all of the social things that I've seen on the countless TV shows that I watched. Boy Meets World. Boy Meets World, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Wonder Years, you ever watch that? Oh, yeah. yeah. I I asked permission from my parents to stay up late when Nick at Night was having a Wonder Years marathon. (laughs) Yes, me too. I don't know if I asked permission, but I definitely watched it, yeah. There was another one that was called like the Torkelsons or something. It was a, it wasn't as popular, but it, it's like the wish version of no. I think <laughs> it, I think it was a I think it was a Disney Channel show, and uh, okay. but it was like this large family. I don't know if they were homeschooled, but they were kind of like there were a lot of parallels to my life, and so I I, mm. I related to that show okay. a, a lot as well. And so obviously, I was setting myself up for a great disappointment because when I got there, it was nothing at all like I expected, and right. I did not fit in at all. And it took me a long time to start to figure things out. So I spent most of seventh grade in that place trying to just understand normal human social interactions. <laughs> you were really isolated. I was really isolated. Like okay. I, I, I didn't know how to have like normal conversations with kids my age. Huh. I really didn't. Okay. And every, everything that I knew I learned from TV. 
not from having real conversations. I had a couple of friends. Mm. My my oldest friend, actually, we're still friends. His name is Chris Daniels, but I call him Redneck Dan. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> He probably hates me for saying this on the show, <laughs> just because we both we we met when we were both living in West Georgia, and he's like this super cool creative photographer guy now. But we were both like rednecks when we were kids, <laughs> and so I remember I put when I was in middle school, I I put his I when I moved from Villarica to which is West Georgia to Marietta, okay. yeah, I in my aim list my my. Oh, my AOL chat, instant yes, messenger yes. list. Yes, my AIM chat list. Uh-huh. I grouped like the, my old friends from there, and I put them under the group of rednecks. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was the only one that I still like talked to over time. Mm. And then so throughout high school until AIM died, right? I just kept him under there because I thought it was really funny. And so, <laughs> and yeah, that's what I. He's still in my phone as Redneck Dan. Uh, I don't know if he knows that or not, but yeah. I'm sure he knows that. He at least assumes, I'm sure. <laughs> so, at this point, I too have met Redneck Dan. Yeah. I think he knows that you call him that everywhere you go. Probably. Uh, it's a term of endearment, though. So I, I did have some some interactions, but it was, they were very, those were even isolated because they were pretty much one-on-one. That was, there was no group setting for me. <laughs> so I get to school and I have no idea what I'm doing. And it just, man, it hit me like a brick wall that, because I had romanticized it so much, like this is what's missing in my life. Mm. And when I got there and realized that there was nothing there for me, I had no hope. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so I had a choice to make of, I could live in that state or I could try to figure it out. And so I chose to try to figure it out. And I made some pretty great strides. And then by the end of seventh grade, I felt like I was finally starting to, I found kind of my little click and I was starting to build relationships and all of that. And I was on the football team. Wow. And, yeah, okay. And, uh, you I have know, a hard time imagining you in a football team. <laughs> as do most people. Who yeah. Know me. I played left guard of all positions. Oh, okay. <laughs> I played football too. Homeschool uh, football? No. Well, rec football. Okay. And I actually had, apparently you could be homeschooled and also play high school football. You could be recruited for high school football from public schools in Georgia. And so I kept having people in Georgia try to recruit me for high school football, which I mean, is is good, I guess. I was a good, I was a defensive end and I was a good one, but I also was this size when I was like 14. So everybody had every single game I played, they made me show my birth certificate to show how old I was Um, because I would just blow through those, those children. You were that kid. (laughs) Just destroy the quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. I played football as well, but it was a little harder for me because I didn't go to public school. Yeah. Yeah, we both homeschooled. Yeah, so what you ended up staying homeschooled, right, all through high school? Right, yeah. So what was that what was it like for you growing up? So it's interesting because I homeschooled from 3rd grade on, or no, 4th grade, 4th grade on all the way through my senior year and but my parents were they weren't nearly as I guess they didn't really want me in a bubble. So me and my brother both got to do things all the time. Like all I went to prom. Your parents were like pool sharks too. 
Like, they got out and did stuff. <laughs> my, my parents were interesting people. They are interesting people, but they, yeah, they were fun for sure. They were pool champions in their heyday. That's amazing. And their their garage represents that always, that they're game people. They love games. And so they have pool and shuffleboard and they still do. But they, yeah, they used to, and my mom's going to kill me for saying this, but I mean, there, there were times when I was in my early 20s where I was going to pick them up at the bar. <laughs> Because 2 a.m. rolls around and I get a call and I'm like, where are you guys at? And they and they tell me, oh, yeah, we went up to this bar and somebody had some homemade moonshine and <laughs> it was it tasted like apple pie. And, and it was soddy really daisy. Soddy daisy, tendency. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so I'd go and pick them up and bring them home. It did. It, I say this like it happened every weekend, but it happened like twice. But it, yeah, so I mean, it was different for me when I was a teenager and then throughout most of my teen years and stuff, they didn't do that. But they were big about, you know, when I homeschooled, I didn't know anybody else who homeschooled. So it was my mom took me out of public school and my brother out of public school because she disagreed with how public school was and how they tried to separate because she was the school nurse even. And so, I mean, I remember there was this one time where she tried to come and talk to me and the teacher was like, no, you can't talk to him. This class is being punished right now. And, and because of what this one kid did. And so he, they're having to sit there silent through lunch or whatever. And she was like, did he do something? And she said, no, it was this one kid. And she said, so wait, so the whole class is being punished. And she said, and the teacher was like, well, yeah, you know, it's the way that I do things. And I'm, I distinctly remember this sitting at the lunch table, watching my mom pin this teacher up against the wall and get in her face and say, you will never tell me not if I can t- talk to my child or not ever again. And I think it was, so your I, mom. I think it was five days <laughs> later that I was pulled out of high, I was pulled out of school. So I love it. And I, and I commend her for that. That was, that was good. And uh, so yeah, so we started homeschooling, and I think my mom just tried to figure it out as as we went along. You know, it started out some books, but then she ended up buying us laptops, and we did it all online, and and it was good. But it was there was a Christian curriculum throughout, you know, my teen years and that whole thing. And I throughout my teen years, I remember going to public school dances in middle school, going to football games through high school. I went to homecoming dance and went to prom. Every dance or extracurricular activity, if you want to call it that, very proper school, grade school terms, extracurriculars were always at public schools. So I didn't do any homeschool groups or co-ops, I guess they're called. I didn't know any anything about this. And so every all of my friends went to public school, but it was all of the surrounding public schools. So a lot of my friends were from different schools and I looked at it as I got to choose who I wanted to be around all the time instead of having to be around everybody five days a week. And, you know, that there's, sounds nice, there's, actually. Yeah, there's some benefits to that for sure. And I think it actually, in some ways, created like this uh, allure with me, you know, like uh, you're people. the enigma. I was the enigma, yeah. <laughs> everybody, and, and back then, too, I was incredibly veiled. You know, um, I, I didn't, I didn't let people in and I was, I didn't know how to share anything about myself. So I was that cool kid that played guitar and that just showed up randomly sometimes. <laughs> yes. Um, know that kid. Yeah. Yeah. I was the weird one, but you so know, what, what do you think, what do you think was the source of you at that stage, not wanting to let people in? I don't know. It, it kind of stems from, I think it might stem from the way that I was raised in some ways, my parents were always, 
very protective, not necessarily protective parents, but they were protective in general. Like they, they were from an early age. We, my brother and I were taught that the world is bad. The world is evil. The world is dangerous. Can't trust people. Can't trust the world. And that really shaped us and probably really shaped us as fives, honestly. Yeah. And because from a very, very early age, very, very early, my brother and I both had this very evident distance between us and everyone else Hmm. from ourselves. But also with us, I don't know, it's kind of a weird dynamic. And maybe one day we can have him on the podcast and we can talk about this. But it's we're both fives. We're both very similar. We're both very, and growing up very, we were very emotionless. We talked about previously in in another episode about stereotypes and being the robot, but I I can tell you there are very, there's a lot of ex-girlfriends from high school that absolutely think I have no heart at all. (laughs) And I'd say there's probably a few exes for my brother that definitely think that. And I'd say his current wife thinks that. Because my brother's a machine. Like, he yeah. just does what he does, and he's very honed in. We've he, built him up to be this, like, mythical creature now. I mean, he, well, he's also, <laughs> he's also, I mean, he's definitely, like, probably on the spectrum, too. So that's there's a lot of aspects to that that plays into that whole thing. And for him, for me, it was, the distance never really went away. In my teenage years, I think that I still felt that distance and never really could place why or where it came from. And when you're a teenager, you don't know how much your parents have shaped you and how much your upbringing shapes you. And so as a teenager, you're still living the life and seeing the world the way your parents want you to see it, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you're in religion, you're worshiping the God that your parents worship, you know, that whole thing. And so in many ways, that's exactly what I was doing. And I was seeing the world, not through my own eyes, but through my parents' eyes. And they're both, my parents are both self-proclaimed introverts. And you were talking earlier about people who like space and isolation. And my parents are those people. I don't think that they actually are those people. I think that they think they're those people. And Hmm. so that's a whole other conversation maybe, but I, I, I have learned over time, like my dad almost would pride himself on not really needing anybody or having any friends, but I see him light up and be incredibly dynamic and fun and interesting and a whole different person when he gets around people he really gets along with. And so it's something interesting to, to watch and to see from the outside and see, and like he, they live where they live now. They have a house where they my dad gets along with his neighbor for the first time in his life. And <laughs> the neighbor is like in his forties. And, but I can just tell th- that he loves it. He loves having a neighbor that he enjoys being around. He came over one time and helped my dad with his truck and some stuff that he couldn't do by himself and you know, stuff like that. I think that it's really fun to watch that with my parents because my entire life, my parents have been so anti friends, you know, and my mom has been hurt a lot through her whole life and has had a lot of bad instances with relationships and with people. So she's very slow to trust and very slow to let people in in a very different way. And she's a four, probably a four wing five. My dad's a five as well. Ah. Probably a five wing four if I had to guess, but I have a strict no, no typing other people policy. So (laughs) I'm guessing that's what he is, but I won't say it definitively. But I did have him take the test. He's definitely a five. My brother's a five. I'm a five. So my mom is surrounded by fives. And uh, it's, you know, it's a weird dynamic. It's, It's interesting for all of us to be so similar and live in that house and live in that world as a teenager. And so for me, having it when I was, this is going to sound like I was in a cage, but 
when I was let out into the world and periodic. <laughs> I think the problem with me was I didn't have this, unlike you, I didn't have this, I didn't imagine what high school would be like. I was let out into the world in my own mind in a way, in, in, in some ways, the way like a, a wild animal is let out into a, a community of people. You know what I mean? I was, I felt almost like the, the I had like a, a false sense of superiority <laughs> and felt much smarter than everybody else. And, yeah. and, you know, you're just, you're, I'm viewing everything from the outside in. And I always felt, I, I, I maybe the distance and the isolation and also being around adults all the time. When I was a kid, my parents would take us to the bars. They were playing pool. And I was around my parents' friends all the time. And I, from a very young age, I was around adults all the time. And so I had no problem being around adults at a young age. I had no problem talking to adults at a young age. And so everybody always seemed kind of silly and dumb that were my age. <laughs> and so middle school and high school was just my opportunity to manipulate people and see what I could do, what I could make them do and what I could make them feel and what I could make them think. That was like a playground. It was not, I never took anything or anyone seriously in my teenage years. And that definitely came back to bite me multiple times when I would deeply hurt people for long, <laughs> long-term hurt people. And it was terrible. And so it's, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's a whole different, whole different perspective, whole different place to, to come from in that way. And so I didn't really feel isolation. I just felt separation. Ah, uh, I see. But in that way, I also felt, I was also very comfortable creating my own space, hmm. if that makes sense. So when I was a kid, I loved music from an early age and I used to lock myself in my room and play music really loud and, you know, have in my own mind, have my own concerts. Right. So I, my dream from a very early age was to be a musician and do that as a career. And that never really stopped. I guess I always was happiest kind of in my room by myself and doing my own thing. And so there's a, definitely a special place in my heart even now for that sanctuary, that space, that safe space that's just me doing whatever I want to do and not having to bend to anybody else's will or desires or needs. Expectations. Expectations, yeah. yeah an expectation-free space. Yeah. space for solitude, I started a habit of weekly coffee shop time. Each Sunday I would go to my favorite coffee shop and bring my laptop and headphones. It was my time to create music, learn new coding languages, or just read and think. I had to stop doing it when COVID-19 hit, so it's been more of a struggle to find a place for solitude. I'm taking more baths for one thing, that's helpful, and thankfully my wife is amazing at recognizing when I'm low on energy and watching the kids so I can take a break. On the other hand, I know I've had too much solitude when I start to lose focus on my current activity and withdraw into my head. It can sneak up on me and be hard to detect, but after a while it becomes clear that I'm not enjoying myself and I'm not recharging anymore. For example, if I'm reading a book, I'll find myself rereading the same paragraph over and over and still not absorbing it. I'm curious, did you still, during this time, did you still, or, or did you at all feel the need for connection? Sure, of course. Still a horny teenager. 
I don't just mean that kind of connection. I mean, I know, but you know, it, that, that communicates in many ways. Uh, you know, and I thought that I always needed a girlfriend. I, you mm-hmm. know, there was many things about it that was very contradictory to my personality. I wish now that I wasn't as relationship driven mm. as I, or you know, romantic relationship driven as I was as a teenager, because. I could have been a lot more productive in my own personal life long term if I wasn't so concentrated on having a girlfriend when I was a teenager. Yeah. You and I have known each other since about 21, 22, I think is when we met. Yeah. yeah. I think I was 21 when we met. Yeah. and Because alcohol was still would... new when we met. I remember <laughs> right. that. And I would say like, most of the time that I've known you, you uh, have, your life has always been like caught up in drama. Yeah. <laughs> With the the I think the the current relationship is the only exception to that that I've that I experienced. Yeah, and it, and my current relationship was the only one where I was willing to not be in a relationship, and I didn't really want to be in one. I tried really hard not to be in a relationship when I moved and got a new job and just kind of wanted to hang out and do my own thing. And I moved back to Chattanooga, and here we are. And so I think that, <laughs> and it, but I think it's a good thing. I don't. It's the first time in my life that I'm okay being in a relationship. I, every other time in my life, I've been with somebody and, well, for the most part, I mean, we could, then there's a whole path we could go down that, that way. But I don't think that I ever wanted to be in a relationship. I felt like I needed to be in a relationship for a lot of my life. And that was just insecurity. So hmm. I didn't, so the relationships were never healthy, ever. And there was always this give and take. Now throw in emotionless, cold-hearted me, and then also throw in bipolar me, where I had a cyclical, every two and a half to three weeks, I would have a period of about three days where I was like, hey, let's implode my life and see what that looks like. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I did that every month. Is that bipolar? Is that just your seven coming? (laughs) I mean, I, I... I mean, it could be both. I mean, I've had a hard time deciding. I've never been officially diagnosed as bipolar, but I've yeah. kept I've kept emotional journals uh, for long periods of time for a year or more at a time, and it's I can see the peak every very consistently. And mm-hmm. I've taken a few online tests about bipolar two disorder, and it always says that I'm ninety seven percent likely have bipolar disorder and should see someone. And I get insurance on June first, so <laughs> planning on going and finding out, but. I think that that's played a really interesting part in my life because I look back and I see that very cyclically, that's a word, right? Cyclically? Yeah. Sounds weird when I say it out loud. Very cyclically, I would be very inward focused. I'd pull into myself. I would separate all of a sudden Mm. and then always break up with the person I was dating. And then like five days later, want to get back together. Some people would take me up on that the younger I was. And so we'd have this on again, off again, every single person I was with. And then you get to a certain point in your life and you realize that's not a healthy, that's not a healthy pattern. And other people realized that before I did. So I would date people for like four months and then eventually they'd get tired of that pattern. So they'd, they, they, we'd break up and then we'd stay broken up and I would be whatever after that and try to decide if that was the right decision. And it's, and what I realized though, is that after about three days, I would come to my senses and go, why the hell did I do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. And why was I so out of control with my emotions for five days? It doesn't make any sense at all. Because most of the time I'm fine. Most of the time I'm in control of my emotions. And then periodically my mind gets a little bit too much like drinking out of a, like from a fire hose and it gets too crazy and too fast and too overwhelming. And 
I want to close everybody off and isolate myself just to deal with it. And then, of course, from that point, I drop into depression for like two we- two days. And and during that time, I'm also super impulsive. So I have to stay away from Amazon. I have to stay away from... <laughs> yeah. I, do I think very, that's always a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I do very... I make impulsive purchases during this time. Oh my gosh, I've uh, made so many terrible 2 a.m. Amazon decisions. Yeah, but mine's always during this time. It's always during the five-day stint of... Mm manic hypomania depression and somewhere in the middle there i go man it'd be really great if i had this new whatever <laughs> and it costs six hundred dollars and i definitely can't afford it and so at least during one of those you got this podcasting equipment <laughs> it's true <laughs> i did um and, and it was during that time well yeah yeah it's that's what happened uh, <laughs> that was actually ended up being such a good purchase though <laughs> Because it's been, it's one of the only times that I impulsively bought something and I'm actually using it for uh-huh. everything. So that worked out uh, to my benefit. But yeah, so I mean, in the long run, it's been a really strange time of trying to figure out how to deal with the distance between me and everyone else, which I constantly feel even today. So mm. yeah. Yeah, for me, it was definitely a very forced isolation because I was, like I'd said, I really over-romanticized being part of society. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) And once I started to figure it out at the end of seventh grade, we moved again. So beginning of eighth grade, like a couple months into the school year, we moved from the small town in West Georgia to Marietta, and which is, you know, suburb of Atlanta, uh, upper middle class. We were not really upper upper middle class at that point, so Mm. I did not fit in. Right. But the first week... The first week was actually really great. Everyone was so friendly, saying hi, introducing themselves, inviting me to sit down, have lunch at the cool kids table. And I thought, well, maybe we made the right decision by moving here. Mm. The next week, no one would talk to me. And that's how I spent the rest of eighth and mainly ninth grade, or mostly ninth grade. So I had a couple of people who were my friends, my next door neighbor, who in eighth grade was a druggy like i've been around i've been around every drug imaginable in eight and and never did them but i was like he did all the stuff like next to me in eighth grade it was insane okay and another kid i'm I'm gonna call him dustin uh and he was just always trying to get me into trouble (laughs) that's basically like we would uh this is eighth grade this is eighth grade we would we would go over to someone else's house and like he would order pay-per-view stuff and blame it on me. <laughs> oh, okay. Just actually trying to get stuff. you into trouble. Like he stole his grandmother's credit card and bought me some soaps, those shoes. Remember the shoes with like the little plates where you could pretend you were a skater? But wait, Heelys? No, soaps. They don't have wheels. They have like the little things like plastic in the middle and you could grind across curbs and stuff. I never saw this. <laughs> This is this is what you get for not going to middle school, man. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, so just stuff like that, and then one more person, uh, one, one more friend who I'll call him Rick, mm-hmm. and he was a football player, surprisingly, and it's like surprisingly that a football player would hang out with me, and it was always mm. he would invite me. Was this when you were playing football? No, okay. I, I had stopped playing football at this point, and the season, like I moved right at the end of the season in middle school. And he would always invite me over to when he had a girl he was interested in who brought her friend along. And he oh. wanted me to <laughs> occupy her friend so he could make out with the girl. It was like never failed. He was That's always what was going on. And so I knew, so Alex was my, 
I said his name. So <laughs> I'll edit it out. So uh, I have a, I have a really, on. I'm having a lot of fun imagining you as that person who's okay. trying to, to, to entertain a girl while somebody else is trying to oh, make out with another super, person. Super awkward. Yeah. So Adam, who is my next door neighbor, I'll call him Adam. We were friends mainly because he was my next door neighbor. And, mm. and uh, I'm really interested where this story is going, where you feel like you need to mask everybody's names. <laughs> I guess I don't. I, they're real people. I don't want to like, oh, okay. but, it, but it gets confusing if I'm not using their names because they're multiple people. Right. For okay. later in the story. Sure. And then Dustin and Rick were in uh, choir with me, which is why we were friends. That's how I met them the first week and we were. Show choir? It wasn't show choir at this point. It okay. was just regular choir. Okay. Chorus. Chorus, chorus class. Chorus class. Yes. yes. Okay. And so anyway, that was it. And that's how I spent. And, but so my friend, my quote unquote friends that I had didn't really feel like my friends. And it felt like my, the relationships that I did have were transactional and I was only around because they wanted me to do something. And I got so depressed. Like I, I used to be an outdoor kid. Like I actually went outside and played a lot. Yeah. And I would run around, had lots of energy and then I instantly became an indoor kid holed up in my basement and watching movies and TV and isolating myself even further. I I contemplated suicide. Like I actually got a knife and held it to my chest and almost killed myself. Wow. Because I was so lonely and angry mm. and desperate and depressed. And it was a really, really dark time. And it, and I don't, I didn't realize this for a long time, how much that shaped the next decade of my life. Mm, okay. But I essentially built a really, a really strong wall at that point because I felt like no one was on my side. No one was there for me and I couldn't trust anybody. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> long story short, basically the, you know, I went, the way that it worked in the school district was the middle schools all split up into three and went to three different high schools. So I, I was only going to high school with like a third of the people that I went to middle school with. And then two other middle schools also combined to make my ninth grade class, which was like a thousand people. It was a pretty big school. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of opportunity to try to remake myself a bit. Mm. And so it took a little while, uh, but I started to make some more friends. And, and then a couple of years go by and I am, I'm at church hanging out with a couple of my friends and Rick, who I'd brought along, who I was the only person I was still friends with from middle school. And we were all just kind of shooting the breeze, reminiscing like, Hey, you remember when that, you remember when this? Mm, yeah. And Rick goes, Hey, Josiah, do you remember when like you first moved here? And Dustin and I told everybody you were gay just to see what would happen. And I'm like, what? And he said, he said, yeah, you remember that. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I realized that they spread a rumor, which, you know, in sure. the late 90s in the South, it was something that made middle schoolers not want to be near me. Wow. And I, and it was, I was so like, I was so inexperienced with social cues that I never picked up on it. Right. But then when I realized this, like all this stuff mm -hmm. started clicking into place. Yeah. Like one, this one kid that I, I was, I made friends with the first week. I went to go talk to him at his locker. And as I walked up and tried to start a conversation with me, with him, he just called me a derogatory name and, and walked away. Um, oh, wow. 
And I, I didn't put the pieces together until that point. Okay. And that really sealed it. So this was 10th grade when I, f- I figured this out. Mm-hmm. And that really sealed it for me. Like, I will never belong. You know, I will never, I can't trust other people. And, and so I, I will say the one thing, the one good decision, I think like the first actual good decision I made in my life was right after this, when this happened, I was so upset. Like I, I wanted to murder this guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was so upset and he had no idea like the effect that it had on me. He had yeah. no idea. He was, he was a kid, you yeah. know, he's in eighth grade. Like you don't think about this kind of stuff. They just thought it would be funny. Mm-hmm. And I went over to his house and I, it took me like a week to, to come to my senses. And I went over to his house and I told him what that did to me. Mm-hmm. And, but I said, in spite of that, I forgive you. And so we are actually still friends. I mean, I've hung out with him several times since not so much these days, but like we've kept in touch somewhat. And mm-hmm. I, the good thing about that though, is that it did start a process of healing. It took a long time, mm-hmm. but because I didn't, I chose not to hold on to it. I was able to start that healing process, but I also had built up these walls and this defense mechanism of shutting everybody else out. And so I learned at that point, I was learning the social piece of it enough that I started to very uh, adeptly break myself into certain compartments and only share certain compartments with certain groups of people. And so then I moved again my junior year and I I ended up making a a few good friends at this school, which was great. And I almost stayed, but then I moved again in so I moved again in my junior year and moved up to Nashville and it was a, it was like a complete opposite experience. I felt like I had known a lot of these people my whole life and mm. I'm still best friends with some of them today. Right. Like, you know, yeah. it was so, but I had, I still never let any of them fully in and that carried itself all the way into college and all the way. Finally, by the time I was ready to start dating my wife, Amy, mm-hmm. um, I had worked through that and I'd finally start to let people fully in. And so she was one of the first people that I ever let fully in. And that really was what solidified our relationship in the beginning. Cause I was so open and it was all kind of a new experience for me. Cause I, you know, I hadn't really, I hadn't been in a romantic relationship where that had happened. Actually, I hadn't been in a romantic relationship at all prior to that, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But I feel like that should be noted at this point. <laughs> you were very isolated. Yeah, I had zero romantic relationships for uh, various reasons, uh-huh. and uh, we will have a conversation about relationships uh, yes. at some point in the in the near future. And religion, which plays a part, <laughs> it did definitely did for me yeah. in that for sure. Sure. And so then that you can't really talk about the solitude versus isolation without bringing the relationships piece into it, because if you are in a relationship where you're still separating yourself, it's going to, you're going to feel the isolation, even though you're in a relationship. And that makes the isolation so much worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so even when, even though I kind of worked through this stuff, when my wife and I first got married, we had a lot of stuff to work through as well. And one of the things was what you had talked about, like I very much enjoyed my solitude and had spent the, you know, so much of my life with that having that be like a free thing. Like, my time is my own. I can right. do whatever I want with it. You know, mm-hmm. um, my space is my own. I can do whatever I want with it. And then I get married and all of a sudden it's like, you are here 24 <laughs> seven. 
I can't get away from you. <laughs> I try to create my own space. And the next thing I know, all of her stuff's in my space. Yeah. And I try to like have my own time. And she had her own work that she was doing to not take that personally. And I felt, I remember, especially because I was so new to actually having a relationship, I felt like there was something wrong with me because I thought that to be a good husband, I wouldn't need my own space and my own time mm. because, mm. Okay. because she should fulfill that for me right. and I should fulfill that for her. Yeah. And there's all these stories that just aren't reflective of reality. And it took us a long time to work through all that. And it didn't help that we we got married fairly young, like in our early 20s. And for the first several years of our marriage, we were living in small spaces that we could afford. And there was no like dedicated Josiah space. And I didn't really get that in earnest until we moved back here to Chattanooga. So just like a few years ago. And I remember the first time I had my own room that was my home office, that was m like my domain, how just... I would walk in there and I would breathe like a sigh of relief. Mm, and yeah. It was the most amazing feeling. Uh, but there, the process that we went through though is figuring out where that line kind of is though, because there's solitude. Uh, and like we talked about, there's solitude and then there's isolation. And it can be really easy for me to say that I want solitude but use it as a mask for starting to isolate myself. Mm, okay. Yeah. And so I have to be very aware of that. And, and the only thing I've found that helps with that is just trying to always have like open, honest communication and which is taking us a long time to get to where when I'm feeling like, I feel like I'm starting to go down that slope of I'm isolating myself and I'm cutting off those connections. And I think that that's where if you kind of like visualize it maybe that's where the line might be, where even if you're not in the same space, there's still a connection there. There's still that. Like if you, one of my favorite movies, of course, in high school was Donnie Darko. Right. And so like, the, the like wormhole that's coming out, connecting like the people together or whatever. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. I, that's the way that I kind of visualize it is I can be, I can have the solitude, be in my own space, have my own time, but I'm still maintaining sort of that ethereal connection. But there are certain mindsets or energies that I get into where I, I start like restricting those or constricting those and cutting that off and severing it. And I, I, the stories I tell myself is like, I do it because I'm trying to protect my energy and protect my, my space and my time, but it ends up being a way to sort of feed that inner monster. That's always just like wanting more, more okay. time to yourself, yeah. you know, at the cost of everything else. There's sure. Yeah. There's, I think with the Enneagram five, our big thing is, is avarice. Is that right? Where it's like, we hoard our resources. Right. Yeah. And we don't want to give them away. <laughs> and so I noticed for myself, that's really what I'm doing when I'm protecting my resources. Mm -hmm. And there's a level of that is healthy and serves me well. And there's, there's a line that is not very well defined, but I know when I've crossed it, where I am no longer serving myself well. And I'm moving into a place where I am closing myself off. I'm like closing my heart off, I think is what it is. I'm closing my heart off to the people in my life that I care about. And so even if I'm in the same space with them and I don't have solitude, I can still be isolated. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of the key, the core 
difference there. Hmm. Okay. In the same space with people, but still isolated. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I don't like that in terms of liking that, but I like that in terms of explaining <laughs> a specific feeling. That's, I think that I do that a lot. I think, or I think that I've done that a lot throughout my life. I don't know. In, in my, in my, I think that I'm in a relationship now where I feel for the first time in my life, I am with somebody who I do feel a hundred percent comfortable around in such a way that when I isolate, I'm also like, I'm totally okay with isolating with her. And I don't, and I am, I'm really bad about communicating that. So sometimes I really want to, I have my own time and my own space where I want to be completely alone and just let things happen and be a creative and, and have those outlets for myself or times where I just want to unwind, you know, sometimes I'll hop on Xbox and play live with my brother and that's how we stay connected. And that's also unwinding in a very different way. Uh, but for me to go downstairs to my office by myself and just just hit some keys and see what happens. I love mm -hmm. that feeling. I love that moment. I love being able to have that and create that space where I know that for the next three hours or four hours, nobody's going to bother me. One, because nobody can get in. <laughs> you have to have a special key card. And two, I just know that I know I have that time and I know that I'm going to be able to follow people just follow some paths. I can hit, like I said, hit some keys and just see where that leads me or play a chord on a guitar or something. And that's such a special thing for me now that I did not realize that I was lacking and missing for so long in my life. But then there's other times where I come home after a really long or really bad day. And one of the ways that I feel I, I so easily choose to isolate myself rather than have solitude is usually after some type of failure happens hmm. or rejection of some sort was, you know, it's usually failure of, of any variety of ways that you can fail in life. And for me, it's usually smaller failures, but I, sometimes I come home and I'm just like, you know what I want to do right now? I want to drink some alcohol. I want to sit on the couch and I want to forget that the world exists for a little while. <laughs> And nowadays I do that in my mind. I, th I think about it, like something happens at 1 p.m. I'm thinking about 5, 6 p.m. I'm doing that. And I sometimes don't communicate that to Madison. And I'm like, you're <laughs> going to be a part of my isolation tonight. And you don't realize it, but we're doing this tonight. And sometimes she'll be like, oh, well, we were going to go to the dog park and then go out with these people. And it's always ruined. And so then I'm grumpy all night and nobody can figure out why. And it's like, oh, I didn't want to be around anyone. But it's weird to, for the first time in my life, include in my mind, include somebody else in my isolation. Huh. Because, you know, and, and in many ways, that's, it, it, that's how we connected early on in my relationship because I was coming out of a really bad part of my life. So she was okay just inhabiting the space that I was in when I first moved back to Chattanooga and I was dealing with my family and my grandmother dying essentially and all these things happening in my life that were big changes and things that I didn't really know how to deal with. And she was okay just inhabiting that space. And so I think in many ways that slowly just kind of trained me into being like, okay, I can have a safe space and also have her there too. And so that was, that's a, that was a new thing for me then. And now it's almost, I don't want to say old hat, but it's something that's very comfortable 
for me now that I never thought I would ever be comfortable with. And that's helped us kind of remain close and stay connected even when I do feel isolated or feel like I want to be isolated, which inevitably kind of prevents me from being isolated, (laughs) which is so funny in that way that it works out because that was not the plan ever. And it just kind of happens that way. But I think that it's always, it's funny the triggers that happen when you want when you choose to be isolated and the differences of, and we haven't really talked about that, the difference between solitude and isolation, we kind of alluded to it, I guess. And I think that there's a safe, healthy way to say, I need my own space and I need my own time by myself. And then there's also how that can so easily go awry. And now it's becoming, you're isolating yourself from everybody. It's instead of being like, I need my own space to exist. You're saying, I need my own space to shut everything else out. And it's just Mm. a very different perspective when you look at it that way, because then you're actively pushing everybody away rather than actively creating space within everyone else and everything else. The way that I create an environment and a way for me to have a long time is to plan it, is to be really on purpose, really deliberate about exactly I'm going to be alone whether it's a day off alone in the house or whether it's to go for a drive or to go for a walk one of those things as long as it's planned into the diary becomes so much easier especially with kids but I've also noticed if I start to need alone time or if I start to feel drained I tend to go and hide a bit more I'll go to the bathroom for slightly more prolonged periods of time just so that I can switch off for a moment and um, I think I've also noticed that if I've had a little bit too much alone time, my wife, who's a two, will start to ask, will start to make questions of, you, you seem really un- subdued, are you okay? You seem really sad, you seem really quiet. And it's still strange to me even now that when I know that I crave alone time, but yet if I've had too much, it has a negative impact on me and I become even less able to function around people. I know that when it's planned in and when it's set, I start to look forward to it and I have more energy because I know that alone time is coming and I know that a break is coming. So that helps me to push on and to have more energy in the times when I can't. It's a great balance to be able to know that you've got something coming, just like your weekend or just like a holiday. It's good to know that it's it is going to happen. I think that, and I don't know if you're like this at all, but I feel like sometimes when I go too long without solitude, I fall into isolation. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so if I don't, if I don't actively create it almost as a discipline of like, th- I'm going to be conscious of what my body and my mind needs and create that time and space for solitude, oh, yeah. then I impulsively run to isolation because out of almost like a desperation of I need to get away I need to shut everything else out like putting on isolating headphones you know just like shut everything else out I need silence I need nothing and that ends up being sometimes a very unhealthy thing when all I was trying to do was create miniature moments of healthy solitude I create a long stint of unhealthy isolation as a overreaction to not having the solitude that I needed all along which happened during the time I lived in the, in the 500 square foot apartment, I think sometimes I would just be like, no, I need time. And you're just, uh, nobody else is allowed to mess with this time right now. And 
that was hard. That was hard on Madison. That was hard on people in my life. I would shut people out of my life randomly and just not respond to texts, not respond to calls and and things like that. Even when it had to do with work, you know, it just, it wasn't, it was too much of a black and white when it needed to be a gray area that was defined by me of saying, Hey, this is, I have this space and I can go there when I need to. And, pe- and the people who love me understand that. And yeah. I didn't have that balance. And it took us a year to figure that out. And now I'm moving into a place where I have that space. It is a more defined thing where I say, Hey, I need this time. I need this thing where I need, I need some time by myself. And and she gets it most of the time. And I think that's, you know, obviously there's compromises both ways, but it's been a really, really nice thing now because I never realized how much of a luxury that was during the times that I was Mm -hmm. deprived of that and just constantly seeking isolation over and over in my life and didn't realize that was even happening. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because what you said was that the the lack of solitude can lead to isolation. Yeah. And where I think that comes from for me is that when I start feeling drained, when I start feeling like I, I don't have the opportunity for the solitude and the things that I need, then I start to resent the things in my life that are preventing that or that I perceive are preventing that. Right. And yes. what's what's interesting is that if I really break it down and think about it, a lot of the times what's really preventing it isn't those things. It's my perception of those things and the stories I'm telling myself about those things. Because while, yes, I I have kids and I have a wife and I have a job and I have lots of things in my life that prevent solitude, Right. I also, I also still work through stuff like shame for feeling the need for solitude. Mm, yeah. And and I also I'm also working through like the when I do start to have the solitude like cutting it off in a reasonable time so that I can re-engage, right? And versus like it's so easy to just live in that space because it, in this phase of my life especially it feels like such a luxury like you said. <laughs> yeah. To have three children, yeah, that's <laughs> it's a luxury. And and so I I wonder how much in our lives where we are where we're creating that isolation is because of the 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 our perceptions and the things that we're telling ourselves versus the the actual environment that we're in how much of that plays into it and and if it's that if that's the case right then we have a lot more power and choice than we are telling ourselves that we do because then we can choose how we respond to things there's not a, there's not much we can control in our lives but we can choose how we respond to things. And and if we choose to respond to to those things that we perceive are blocking us from solitude and from a place of, of gratitude versus resentment. Right. I think that can go a long way towards preventing that slippery slippery slope into isolation. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that it's it's a self discipline. You have to, you know, it's such a buzzword now to talk about what's it called? Self-care. I think it's such a buzzword to talk about self-care nowadays, but fives have such a unique perspective on self-care, I think, because so much of it is just doing nothing. (laughs) Uh, You know, the days that I get to do nothing, sometimes I, I actually daydream about 
there were times in my life where I had so much space and so much time to do nothing. Yeah. And I would go to the park and I would hang up my Eno and sit in a hammock for four hours and read a book. That sounds like bliss. <laughs> on like in like a September or October month in the South, which right. is, you know, usually like 60 degree weather and really nice and really sunny. And I think about, I mean, I used to do that when I needed to bundle up. I didn't even care. It's 32 degrees. I'm still going to lay in my hammock and read. And I used to have that almost as a self-discipline. And that was my way of getting away. And I, I daydream about it now. I daydream about the luxury of that, that to be able to do that. And I, I kind of do that to myself. We live downtown. Like, where am I going to do it now? You don't have to drive away. But it's, it's funny that I think about the times in my life where I had nothing to do and I took it completely for granted. Yeah. hundred percent. Cause it was, it didn't have to be a self-discipline then. It was just, I don't have anything to do today. Let's, I'm going to, I want to read this book. I'm going to read this book. So now I have to plan it out. I have to say Saturday, I don't think I have anything to do. Do we have anything to do? Is it, a, do we have a couple couples thing to do? Do we have to go do errands? No. Okay. So maybe from one to four, I can do this thing and you have to, put it in your calendar to do nothing. <laughs> yep. And that's such a weird adulting thing that we do now. And so, and it's also easy to just not do it and not think about it. Just like going to the gym. It's such a hard thing for me to remember to do. And also so very important. Yeah. And I think that that's something that I think we could all take away from this conversation is that just remembering to take the time when you need it the most and not sometimes when you don't need it, when you don't feel like you need it, when you think everything's good, remember to take the time for yourself to just do something that you enjoy doing that doesn't involve anybody else. That's a healthy activity. You know, all of, I would venture to say the majority of people who listen to this podcast love to read. I would just go ahead and say that. If you don't, Are you stereotyping fives, Cody? <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit. I think I think this is a I think this is a safe stereotype. <laughs> if you don't love to read, I would say that you probably love to listen. And so audiobooks are a thing. That's a safe assumption since you're yeah. listening to this. Yes. Yeah, right. And <laughs> it's true. So I think that being a, remembering to take that time to just sit around and absorb some information or do something that you enjoy doing that works your brain in a way that's not I because I can think about times that are not healthy for me is laying in bed doing nothing and I think that solitude for me the difference between solitude and isolation is choosing to do something by myself that's productive and healthy and engaging with my brain um, with my mind and doing versus doing absolutely nothing and sometimes there's a need for that too sometimes it's great to just lay on the couch and watch movies or whatever anytime oscar or go, season or go float in a sensory deprivation tank i've been hard i've never done that before and i just yesterday was talking about i really want to do that it's been re-entering my mind dude amy bought me a gift certificate for that for father's day like three years ago you've, and then you've never done it i didn't i lost it and then i found it again and realized it was expired oh but, man. but the funny thing is the place i wanted to go we ended up moving downtown to like a block away from it and yeah. then i still never went because of the quarantine and then we moved i mean we're only like five minutes away so it's not that big of a deal but like <laughs> i need to it's odd that it expired after you i didn't think things oh expired. i found it like two years later it's, still, though, it had you bought an, it. It had an expiration date, I guess. That's I don't know. I could probably weird. still tuck my way into it. Probably, yeah. yeah. Especially since it's your first time. Yeah. I feel like I've heard stories of the one that's in our town, and like they're pretty pretty excited about first-timers, oh. I think, so oh. from what I've heard. And I really, really want to go. I've, I've thought about it so much because I'm so absolutely terrified of what it would feel like. 
Really? Yeah. Anxiety, hardcore thinking about being in a box of water shut in, shut out from everything terrifies me. It sounds like heaven. My, my yeah, paradise. Your utopia. <laughs> my- <laughs> I mean, and maybe it does to me too, but I've, I've also heard really crazy stories about it where people feel like have out of body experiences. Oh yeah. I want to do that. That's and, why I want to do it. And, yeah. Well, and, and maybe that's, maybe that's a lot of past, past Cody talking right yeah, now. Of, it sounds like what you're afraid of is the out of control. Yeah. The yeah. getting rid of the illusion of control. Sure. And, and also getting rid of the illusion of ego and physicality. But then there's also like some days I have days where, you know, it, the, similar to the day that I took shrooms is very similar to the days that I would do that without hesitation is the days where I'm like, you know, I'm up for anything. I just kind of want to see what happens and I'm just along for the ride. And I think that that I've had more of those days lately. And I think it's because I, I, anytime I start to get into a rhythm in life, I want to disrupt the rhythm. And I think that Mm. finding ways to do that in a healthy way, rather than imploding my life is uh, much better and much healthier. And I think that that could be something that would be so completely therapeutic for me. I mean, it's there. I don't know if anybody's ever had a really bad experience. I've heard of people getting out of it and just weeping for 30 minutes and all kinds of crazy things, but that just only interests me more at this point. And so now I kind of want to see what happens. I've heard people meeting God. I've heard of people like doing crazy things. And so I'm just like, yeah, I really want to know now. I don't know what happens. So who knows? We'll see. That might be something that maybe we should do it together. You go in yours and I'll go in mine. We'll talk about it right afterwards. <laughs> the we'll... last thing we're going to want to do is talk about it right afterwards. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, maybe not right afterwards, but I don't know. Well, yeah. okay. So what we'll have to do is we'll have to schedule it for a Saturday evening and go do it and then, but set up all the podcasting equipment beforehand <laughs> and then leave and come over here and just record what our experience was. Yeah, just hit record without talking yeah. about anything before. Yeah. That could be fun. That could be fun. Let's yeah. experiment. If you would like to hear Cody and Josiah <laughs> do this experiment, go to Enneagram5.com slash community. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the shameless plugs. <laughs> Things you got to do. But I think that it's, uh, yeah, choosing solitude over isolation and solitude being the healthy choice where you're creating space rather than shutting people out is and a lot and creating space that is that you choose to communicate with your loved ones and have permission from your loved ones to have that space i think it's important to have a place and a space for for and whatever that looks like to you i think that that's that's really important fives i I don't want to stereotype but i think that is something that we do generally have in common is that in some way, we have to have a space that is separate from everything and everyone else that is a place for healthy activity and healthy learning, whatever that looks like, and uh, a space that has no expectation. I think that'd be, that's what creates a safe haven and a sanctuary, and that's something that's it's hallowed ground for a five. Yeah, and it's part of what gives us the energy and the confidence to re-engage in the world outside of the space. Right, yeah. yeah. This podcast, I don't think I could have done or do continuously what I do with this podcast on the editing and music and all the stuff. If I didn't have that space, yeah. if I'm, I try, I've tried a couple of times to imagine myself in the apartment we were in before this and trying to do that never would have happened. I mean, I say never, I created the intro there. 
<laughs> but to be able to continuously have yeah. output. You could have made it work, but it wouldn't have been energizing the way that it is now. Right. Now, yeah, it was definitely exhausting. I always felt like I was imposing. Mm. And that's an important thing, too. You know, when I have a, a space that I'm trying to create as a safe space and I'm sharing it with somebody else, I feel like I'm imposing on them. I felt like I was always... Yeah, and, and in many ways I was keeping Madison up and, and trying to, and, and trying to create this space, but it wasn't my space. I was still sharing it with someone else. And so it's been nice to have my own space that's isolated from everybody else and everything else to create as a safe space for myself. So yeah, definitely encourage you to do that. All right. I think that's a wrap. That's a wrap. All right. Cheers. Cheers to solitude. <laughs>